Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, she's an actress, model, author, entrepreneur. It's Deborah Jiggs. How are you doing today, Deborah? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Nice we're, intro. Very quick, right to the point. <laughs> yes, we're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the end. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Yes, I'm I'm a native LA girl, born and raised in California in the South Bay area. And I grew up ice skating. So that was kind of my first love and my first introduction into, you know, the, the competition world, you know, the, uh, you know, being competitive and kind of learning how to fail and get back up. I learned that at a very young age. And it was a lot different back then. You know, we didn't, you didn't give trophies to fourth, fifth, and sixth. It was like, it was first and second, and sometimes you remembered who came in third, but it was a very different time, you know, to grow up and to learn those kind of rules and those kind of lessons. And so that was, I did that, you know, that was my childhood. And I also went to private school. So, you know, I was skating or I was going to school. I didn't have much of a typical, you know, let's play after school type mm-hmm. of life because I went straight to the skating rink. I skated before and after school. Wow. And so that's, I think the the discipline in my life really came from those years of ice skating. That's where I got a lot of my really good life lessons. Did you like that structure of where you were busy all the time? Or did you wish that you kind of had that free time to maybe explore other fun things that you wanted to do? I think that when you are on purpose and you know, and I knew at a young age that I loved to skate and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I loved performing. It didn't, I didn't even think about it. You know, it just, that was my, that seemed normal to me how I was living my life. So I didn't really know that I I didn't know if I was missing out. I thought I had such a great, you know, routine Mm -hmm. that, you know, if I would overhear kids talk about, you know, oh, you know, this happened or, you know, when they played or whatever, and I never felt like I was missing out. So I think I, I think that's, that's due to the fact that I really loved what I was doing. I think that you, you, I think that for people that feel like they miss out on something, it's because they're not happy with what they're doing. And I think that rings true even as adults and even in today's world, you know, when we're not really happy with what's going on here, we're looking somewhere else. Right. And, you know, that's why social media, you have to be so careful with social media because everything looks a certain way, but it's not really the way it is. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you can definitely tell everything's like almost like a false facade in a way on social media, where is it really, they only want you to see the good things, never the moments of vulnerability and things like that on social media, because it kind of gives that, oh, they're weak or kind of a bad taste in a way. And I think that's what people connect is if they can connect to that person, they're going to be more interested and want to learn more. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I just think that, if we use things for the, for the right reasons, then, you know, it comes across that way. But for me, you know, it's the social media thing. It's really hard because 
you know, you see, you see things, but the, the perception is different and the yeah. reality is different. And unfortunately for a lot of people, you know, they live by that and, and then they feel bad about their own stuff, you know? So that's why I said, if we're happy with what our, we're doing and what, you know, I never felt, I didn't have FOMO as a kid. I didn't feel like I was missing out because I felt like everything that was going on in my world was exactly where I was supposed to be. As you're growing up, did you have a dream job or something that you wanted to pursue as a career? I always looked at the things that seemed obvious. So when I was growing up, you know, everybody talked about becoming a doctor or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. There was never talk about being an entrepreneur, you know, like having your own business. Like nobody talked about it. It was always like some big, like you could be a doctor. Like that seemed like, you know, huge or a lawyer. And I kind of, I had a little fantasy about being a doctor. I, I, I was really fascinated with going to the doctor and I was very sickly as a kid. You know, I had pneumonia a lot and I had certain things that happened where I was in the doctor's office a lot. So I was fascinated with it. And it seemed like a job that I liked the thought of taking care of people. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what I liked about that. But, and I, for a long time, I would tell people that I was going to be a doctor and I loved you know, like I would get those toys as a kid, you know, with a stethoscope. Yep. And I just was, like I said, very fascinated with that. But as I got older, for a while, I thought I was going to be a teacher. Again, something, you know, being of service. I picked those kind of jobs. Um, didn't really fall into entertainment and acting and all of that until my first year of college. What was the first like branch that got you into like entertainment and those kind of fields? Well, so the ice skating and the um, dancing growing up kind of put me in that performance arena. Mm-hmm. And so in college, I was a song leader and I was performing at football games and basketball games. And then I tried out for a professional football team and I, I made the squad and I was 19 years old. And because now I was a professional cheerleader, we were now doing interviews and we were, I was on the morning shows and on the radio shows and I was being introduced to that world. And I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to be on TV. I want to be, I want to do commercials. I want to like keep expanding. And so the first, so after that cheerleading, one of the girls that I cheered with said, you know, we're going to go to Japan and dance. And I said, I want to go. How do I go? You know, I was like, I I was like, I had never been out of the country. I think I'd been out of the country once. (laughs) When I was 14, my mom took my sister and I to England and to Spain. And so I had really never traveled. So I was like, I want to go to Japan. That just seemed like a really far away adventure. And so she got me on this dance squad and they sent my photo. And back then you had to mail everything. And so they sent my photo and, you know, my stuff. And they said, yeah, we'll take, you know, she can come. They sent me a ticket and I ended up staying in Japan for six months. And while I was there, we danced at two different clubs and dancing was huge in Japan back then. And one of the, uh, somebody came in to see our show and they asked me if I would do a commercial dancing And so I ended up, I ended up doing commercials in Japan. I did two commercials and I loved it. I loved being on the set. 
I loved the whole experience. So when I came back to the U.S., the first thing I did was sign up for a commercial workshop in Hollywood called Tepper Gallegos. And it was every week. And at the end of the six weeks or eight weeks, they had these agents come in. And we did an improv. We did a commercial. They handed us a script. We did the commercial. And it was a great opportunity to see if if there were any agents there, if they wanted you. They came up to you and said, we want to sign you. And I had three agents come up to me that night that were interested in signing me. And so I signed with Pacific Artists. And it was really exciting because I thought, oh, my God, I have an agent. You know, <laughs> like, who would have thought, you know? And um, uh, the thing that I remember the most about that time is I think I was around 22 at the time. And they sent me on an audition for a Japanese commercial. It was the very first audition. And it was just serendipitous that it was for Japan. And I booked it. And they were like, okay, we just signed her. The first thing we sent her on. Usually it takes like 50 auditions before you book (laughs) something. And I just went in. And because I had, now I could speak Skoshidake. Oh, yeah. So I wooed everybody in the room. I walked in. I was like, hajime meshite. You know, and like, konnichiwa. And I was speaking, you know, Skoshidake, Japanese. And, uh, And they loved that. And I had, you know, the look that I had back then was what they were looking for. And it's just, it just, everything kind of lined up. So now my agent had really even stronger confidence. So they sent me out all the time and I, I had such a good run. And then I switched agencies and, and went with Sutton Barth and Venari, a little bit of a bigger agent, you know? And so I did all this before, you know, this and modeling up until 1989 when Playboy came knocking. How did that opportunity come about? Because going from acting, doing the commercials to going to modeling and going to even a big company of Playboy, how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, I, you know, I had an agent and her name was Vivian and she called me and she said, Playboy is coming out with a book. It's called the lingerie book. And they, they saw your photo and they are very interested for you to come in and audition for the cover. And I said, well, is there any nudity involved? You know, because Playboy yeah. and nudity goes together. And and I was doing very wholesome girl next door stuff at this point. So so she said, I don't think so, because they would have told me. And she said, no, I, I think, you know, that there might be like a bikini shot type situation, but I, not for the cover. I said, great, I'll go. So I go to the famous building on Sunset Boulevard. And I auditioned for this cover of the lingerie book. And the funny thing was, is when I got there, they wanted me to take everything off and put on a robe to go in the studio and do a Polaroid. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not here for that. I'm here for the cover of the lingerie book. And uh, they said, well, everything we do, you know, has some type of nudity. We need to see your body. And back then, so this would have been 1989, you know, you did have, whenever you did a swimsuit audition, you had to do the audition, obviously, in a bikini. But what they were looking for was birthmarks, tattoos, piercings, scars. That was a big thing back then. You know, the, the makeup now has advanced. It's much mm-hmm. easier to cover those things. But back then, that was a big deal. That was going to take work to cover those those situations. And so 
So I left on my undergarments. I did the Polaroid. I left. And I literally thought to myself, this is not for me. And, you know, I always had a feeling when I left an audition, whether or not I was going to get it or if I had a chance. And with that, I literally was like, this is so not for me and left and didn't think about it. But when I got home, I had a message on my machine from Marilyn Krabowski, who was the uh, editor-in-chief of Playboy. And she literally said, you know, I saw your Polaroids and we want to test you for a centerfold. And I was like, what? They completely are mixing me up with somebody else. And I said, are you sure? Because, you know, first I called my agent and she's like, no, it's true. So I called Marilyn back and I said, this is Deborah. I just listened to your message. Are you sure you have the right person? <laughs> I didn't think that audition went so well. She said, no, it's absolutely yeah, we're very interested. Looking back, you know, it's funny because the magazine really represented a lot of blondes. And I think when a brunette came along that maybe had potential to be a centerfold, they were like a brunette, you know, because if you really look throughout the the decades and stuff, it's really blonde heavy, you know. And so I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm brunette. You know, I just did not, you know, and then of course, then I have to call you know, the people that are closest to me. And I'm like, do you think I should do this? And in 1989, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. So of course, everybody was like, oh my God, you have to do it. It's so sexy. And oh my God, you'll get to meet Hugh Hefner. And you know, <laughs> everybody's reaction was different. So, so I rolled the dice, you know, my agent and I actually had the biggest conversation because she said, you know, look, it's going to change everything. Because you, you know, I was doing like the Sunday paper ads, you know, the wholesome girl next door for Macy's. Mm -hmm. She said, you're not going to get those jobs anymore because once you did Playboy back then, it changed everything. And so I took, I took a gamble, you know, with it. And I have to say, you know, looking, looking back, there's, there's always good and bad to every situation for the most part, I don't look back with any regret. I just think, you know, it was a part of history and it's something that I did. But this was also before the internet. Yeah. This was before you could Google anybody. Nobody, I didn't know what that was. And who could, I didn't have in my mind that one day somebody would Google me and there would be all my photos. You know, I thought this was a one and done. If you were a fan, you collected it and that would be it. So I had no, I, I didn't, yeah, I thought it was fascinating when in the late nineties and early two thousands, all of a sudden people could Google. And now, you know, I have people saying, did you do Playboy? So if I regretted anything, it's that I didn't have the the knowledge. I don't know how I would, but you know, that I would have made it more clear in my contract that this is just for Playboy, that Playboy owns the photos just for Playboy mm -hmm. and for Playboy's books, but not, you know, now uh, Playboy was selling all of our photos. When the internet blew up, they found a way to make a lot of money by selling our photos. And so all of a sudden my photos were being associated to a lot of websites that were not anything to do with playboy it was you know i all of a sudden it looked like 
I was doing porn. These photos were showing up on porn sites. So it was like they were using my photo to drag people into a porn site. And so in 2011, I kind of had had enough and I went to Playboy's legal department. I said, look, you know, I did Playboy in 1989. And now for some reason, all my photos are being used to guide people into really dark websites. And they said, well, they really shouldn't be. Can you send us all the links? So I spent like a month. Oh. Every link that I was linked to and sending it to Playboy Legal. And for the most part, 80% were taken down. Wow. Because once Playboy sent a letter to those, because a lot of them were just, you know, it got out of control is what happened. You know, maybe have sold it to certain companies, but then those companies are selling it to other companies. And before you know it, you have all these beautiful Playboy photos being used in the wrong way. So I was getting calls from people saying, did you do this porno? And I said, look, click on my photo. I guarantee you I disappear. It's a photo that's being used to bring you into the site, you know, and that was there. That was, it worked. So, so that, that took about six months to a year. And finally that kind of faded out really, I think, I haven't really checked lately, but yeah, that was, that was, that was kind of a problem because I thought, you know, there went that wholesome girl next door to kind of it being a little bit of an issue. And so thank God Playboy took the right, you know, and I said, are there any other girls complaining about this? There were a few of us, but you know, for me, it was kind of a big deal because I was at that time in my life in the business world and so I didn't want my name being associated yep. with these, these dark websites. I thought, no, this is not true. It's very false. So, yeah, so that took a while. And even today, I mean, th- things will pop up. You you know, it's like weeds. You take one out and then 10 more <laughs> pop up. And so it's really hard to to navigate that. But I did, you know, I tried the best I could. It would cost a lot of money to really nip it in the bud. Being in that limelight, did it ever take a toll on you personally? Did it like having that big exposure, that kind of career growing each and every like opportunity you got, did it ever take a toll on you personally? Yeah, it did. You know, because I'm a person that is, I get easily anxious and, you know, I suffer with a little anxiety and and nervousness. So I would say, yeah, there were times that, you know, I just would want to just kind of like isolate and shut down a little bit. And you can't do that, you know, if, you know, and I, I, I was really young and I didn't know that that's what I suffered from at the time. You know, I just thought I was tired or I just thought, you know, but I could remember being on certain sets or being in certain environments and just feeling very anxious. And, um, you know, you always have to be on, mm-hmm. you know, when you get into certain environments or rooms or auditions and you have to be on a lot and so that is that can be really wearing especially if you're somebody who suffers from you know anxiety once in a while it's like (laughs) that can be really draining so yeah so yeah it does it takes a toll and I, I would say that you know 
the 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 preparation to to auditioning to getting the job all the stuff that happens kind of behind the scenes that's all the stuff that can be very wearing and very draining it all looks great once you have a job and you're and and you work on a film or you work on a tv or you work on a pilot you work on a commercial and you see the end result it all looks great but what goes on behind that and how what it takes to get to that point i think is the part that's very wearing it you know because a lot of stuff goes into that you know a lot of rehearsal a lot of yeah. you know preparing and and all of that stuff so yeah it it, it it definitely you know i don't think i really realized that actually until probably after i had kids and then i realized you know i was going on auditions and then trying to take care of young you know i had toddlers and I remember it was around 1998, 1999, and I did a TV show called Night, Night, um, I can't think of it now, Night something, Nightstand, and um, it was a funny show, it was like a spoof on talk shows, and and I I had a lot of dialogue, and it was like, you know, I had three babies at home, and I'm rehearsing to do this, and I remember after I did that show, I just thought, I don't know if I can keep up this moment keep this momentum up you know it was really hard to audition with kids and then you know and then you book the job and you have to give it your all and so yeah it could be very wearing was that the big moment that you were ready for that next chapter that next experience to go on for yourself yeah I think you know I I think I I thought you know I don't know that this would be fair to my kids also you know because it it even it takes a lot out of me. So imagine if it takes a lot out of me, that's taking a lot out of my kids. Cause I believe in that kind of energy, you know, what I'm bringing to the kids is, you know, and so I thought this is really wearing on me. It's gotta be wearing on them. So yeah, it was a big decision. So really I, I kind of took a step back and only auditioned for things that I knew would not be too like I still audition for commercials or in back then infomercials were really big and industrials and you know things that you could go and work on and be done mm-hmm. you know but to do something regularly I, I just thought that as nice as it would have been financially it wasn't good as a mother so when was the first time that you got out of the entertainment industry I don't know that I've ever been completely mm-hmm. out you know, even when I was working in business, I'd still every once in a while go on on an audition and and I was still doing industrials. Even when I lived, I lived in Park City for about six years. I raised my kids there for a while and I had I was with talent management group there. I was with an agent and I would still do industrials and commercials and infomercials and things like that. But I was also selling real estate. And I was working uh, for Park City TV. I did their mountain morning show, which was a two hour unscripted morning show. And so I don't think I ever got out, Mm -hmm. you know, even those, these things aren't really popular and you wouldn't like, you wouldn't find me on TV. You know, I was still doing work in that business, you know. It sounds like you like that kind of creativity kind of aspect of it. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And, and it's, it fulfills that performance need in me because I, I know when, when you've been doing something your whole life, 
you know, and for me, it's not just, it's not about acting or modeling. It's that performance, you know, being, whether it's on the ice or cheerleading or doing a commercial, you know, it's that performance bug, you know, yeah. it's like, it, it feels good to just do something creative. I did a movie last year, had a very small part and I didn't mind. I just liked being on the set, yeah. you know, I just thought, cause I hadn't been on a film set in years and it just felt good to be on the set and have that creativity. Like you said, that creative juice flowing and like watching other people do what they're great at. And there's just something about that. You know, you miss it when you're not around it. And so it's kind of hard to leave for good. (laughs) If you know what I mean? I was going to say, sometimes when you haven't done something in such a long time, when you get that first opportunity, you're like, yes, where do I sign up? Because yes. And that's how this was. It was somebody that knew me and they said, look, we'd love you to play the part of the mom. And you know, there was no money. And I just said, I'd love to. I'd love to. I I felt honored that, you know, just any, the fact that anybody would want me on the set, you know, now (laughs) when I've kind of haven't really been in the audition arena was, it just felt really good. And I thought, of course, yes. Kind of a fun question. Is there that dream opportunity that you wish you maybe got to experience or something that maybe if you had the opportunity you would want to do that a movie a tv show a modeling gig something fun it's hard because there's so much out there but what would that fun oh my gosh well if i was five nine or five ten i would have (laughs) i would have lived for the runway you know i love i love watching fashion shows so that would have been just a fun you know it's work i know but it's still that would have been something really fun um I would say that the thing that I probably regret not doing is, is theater. Okay. You know, because in the early nineties, I was really studying and I wish I would have taken the opportunity back then to get on stage, Mm -hmm. you know, and do some, uh, some acting live on stage. I mean, you still have the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. You never know nowadays. You never know. As an author, how did you start coming up with the idea that you wanted to write a book? So it's always kind of, I've always liked to write from a very young age. I, I That was kind of what I loved the most in school was writing in English, writing. Mm-hmm. But um, I've always written, you know, I'm one of those people that always writes. I have journals, you know, everywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so in 2019, I was kind of at a business uh, business mastery convention. And while I was sitting there, I just in my head started thinking about writing a book and I thought, stop thinking about it and do it. Mm -hmm. And so I started out by writing a weekly blog just to see if my writing would resonate with anybody. And I wrote, I committed to myself to write a blog a week. So every week I posted a blog for 52 weeks and the response was really cool. And I realized that, you know, I had something to say. And so through that, I was asked to write a chapter in this book, Here Comes the Sun. So this just came out July 7th and my chapter is on page 32 and I share my journey So this is my chapter. 
Um, I share my journey with addiction and recovery and suffering quietly basically is what the chapter's about. And so I suffered for years with addiction and um, that. And so when uh, I was offered to write a chapter in the book, somebody sent me a message because they read my blog and they said, would you mind writing about this for a chapter in this book? And it's kind of like a chicken soup for the soul, this book. Mm -hmm. It's like all these women that wrote a chapter and it's the theme is being in the dark coming into the light. That's why it's called Here Comes the Sun. And so I talked about the darkness of being in an addiction and then coming out of it and what that looks like and about relapsing and falling back into that addiction and coming out. Like that's happened to me a few times. So that that was that. And then the other project is, and this one's coming out in October, Son of a Basque. This was a labor of love. This, this was a book that was in a box that my grandfather wrote and he passed in 1998 and my grandmother died in 2017. And when we were cleaning out her garage and cleaning everything out in her house, I found this box with this book and I asked her, I said, could I have this? And she said, at this point, she didn't care. He wrote it back in the early late eighties, maybe was when he wrote it. And you can tell by the way it was typed and it was all out of order. So I shipped it back to, she lived in Florida. I shipped it back to California and it sat. And in 2000, the end of 2018, I took it out of the box and tried to make sense of it. And as I was doing that, I was fascinated by my grandfather's life. 70% of the things that were written in this book I didn't even know about. So then I I started writing blogs about it because when I got on my blog writing journey, I wrote about that. I said, you know, it's so important that we really learn about our grandparents. And if if we're lucky enough, I had great grandparents when I was younger. I wish, can you imagine the information I could have gotten if I would have taken the time to really learn about their life and their parents and their grandparents. Yep. I mean, I just like all of a sudden realized by working on this book, if I could just have one more day to talk to my grandfather, because I mean, he worked at San Quentin. He was a prison guard. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. How much trauma is involved with some of the stuff that he wrote about. And, you know, I really believe in that generational trauma, you know, gets passed down. And sometimes we have this, like I said, I suffer with anxiety and nervousness. And sometimes we suffer with stuff we don't even know where it comes from. Like, mm-hmm. You know, I, a lot of people say, if you ask them, where does that come from? They'll go, I don't know, yep. you know, because they really don't. It's like energy. And so I then I got more fascinated about that, about this generational trauma like when we go to the doctor and we have to fill out medical forms and it says do you have any family history of diabetes or heart disease or they don't ask do you have family disease of trauma and you know what about what did anybody have suicidal thoughts did anybody have addiction did you know none of that is asked and so I thought about it a lot when I was so basically what I did is I I did a lot of editing and a little bit of rewriting I wanted to keep it as authentic to his writing as I could, but some of it had to be 
changed because some of it didn't quite make sense. And, and we had to make sure all the characters lined up. So once I did that, then I sent it to an editor. Then I formed a publishing company so I could publish the book. So it really becomes about two, two really valuable messages is one, write things down. Yep. Because this is valuable to me, to me and to my family and, you know, to future generations to know, like, I don't know, maybe four generations from now, they're going to read this and go, wow, you know, it really got me thinking. And so now, of course, I had written a book in um, 2020. And so after I finished this project, I went back and kind of rewrote stuff that I had written in my book because I thought, well, now I really want to be careful about what I am leaving behind for generations to come. You know, when my kids have kids and their kids have kids, Mm -hmm. they have, you know, it's so cool. They can go, well, this was her grandfather. (laughs) This was her, this, you know what I mean? And so it kind of got me excited about, you know, we have all these websites now, ancestry.com and, you know, all these websites you can go to, to find out more about your, where you're from and what your, where you are from culturally, you know, like I had no idea when I did that test, how much I have a lot of Scottish in me and I can't figure out where in my family that's coming from. But if I would have interviewed my grandparents when they were living, I probably could have matched that all up somehow. Yeah. So I just, so I think it's so fascinating. And if I could leave anybody with anything from this podcast, it's Go interview your family, go interview your relatives, find out what it was like for them growing up, what it was like for them going to school, what it was like for them having relationships, what their parents were like, what their grandparents were like, get that information because, oh my gosh, you know, for me to be like in my fifties and find this and go, what, you know, like just his, his, um, his whole experience in World War II, you know, this was a this was a man that you know fought for America, and he mm-hmm. was you know he had to fight you know against all the odds. They wanted to put him in a because he spoke fluent Spanish. His English wasn't that great. They wanted to you know back then they put if you didn't speak English and, and you were kind of an immigrant, they would make you like work in the kitchen or work as cleanup or whatever. He didn't want that. He wanted to be a tail gunner and he wanted to fight in the war. And so he like against all the odds did all that. And um, it's a really, really cool journey, you know, to go on with somebody, you know, and he was very proud of his Basque heritage and not a lot of people know about the Basque country And so that's why it's called Son of a Basque. And so, you know, it's just, it was fascinating for me. I didn't know that his father was a bullfighter. Like, what? Wow. Yeah. So I am telling you, we think we know people in our lives. Yep. And we, and we just, we're not, I just feel like we need to be more curious Mm. and we need to be more excited about even if we're not 
that if we don't get along with people in our family, even if we don't feel like we have a relationship with them, we should still try to find out all this great information. Because if I had known that this was going to be so something I'd be so passionate about, oh my God, (laughs) I would have, I would, I would have known my grandparents so much, so much better. I love that you talked about finding information and learning because even when I was growing up doing like grandfather, grandparents day, and I got to interview my grandfather and I learned all about him in Poland and him being a fencer and things that I never knew. It was so interesting. And I thought we shared a bond even more learning about that stuff. And you just hearing you share the information that you learned, it sounds like that kind of felt like you learned even more and got closer in that information that you learned. So much closer. I had so much more admiration. I have so much more respect. I, there was, like I said, there were, he, he was involved in all three wars, you know, World War II, the Korean War and Vietnam. And he was, I learned, I, I also recognized where I ha- got my passion for being of service mm-hmm. from because before I read this, I was on a trip in 2014. I went to Peru with a group to look at all these schools that, you know, have no money. And, and, yep. and it's with this uh, campaign called Go Campaign. And they raise money to give, you know, help schools that are underfunded, that don't have any funding. And so we went to go look at this, this school in Peru. And I ended up adopting the school and, you know, sending them money every month. And so cut to then I read this book and my grandfather had set uh, set up in Vietnam a a whole thing where he had all his friends in America sending clothes for kids and and um, books and things and he set up a whole thing for this orphanage in wow. Vietnam so all these people were sending clothes and for the kids in Vietnam. And I was reading this coin. Well, that's where I get that from, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and I had no idea. You know, I had no idea that, you know, so, so it's very fascinating. So yeah, I learned a lot about the good and the bad, you know, and then I realized, you know, all the trauma that he held in, you know, being involved in three wars, working mm. at a working as a prison guard, seeing things that no human being should see, and he saw a lot in his yep. lifetime, and so then that helped me to understand really him. It helped me to understand his three kids, which is my mother and her two brothers. It helped me to understand how my relationships with that part of my family developed because of certain things that happened to him Mm -hmm. so and that's just one grandparent imagine if I knew stuff about all of my grandparents Mm -hmm. if I knew the things that they suffered with or the traumas they had or whatever like I know a little bit about my his wife my grandmother she was born in England she lost her parents at a very young age she was raised by her granny and she suffered with a little addiction she you know I remember as a kid her being you know the pill popper and the kleptomaniac and she had a little she had her little secret life going on but I wish I would have known more where why where did that come from Mm -hmm. you know what what happened in London you know she used to run bets for granny 
They used to run, but you know, they, she used to run down and like as a kid run bets and you know, you, you, you wish when it's too late that you had this information, this really cool information. So yeah, I would say get that information. It's so, so important. And, you know, I got, I got just this experience of putting this book together and it was, it was really not for any reason, you know, I didn't look at it as, Oh, I hope it becomes a bestseller. I never even thought of it that way. I thought of it as something to leave behind. Yep. Cause you know, History leaves clues mm-hmm. and, and also we can learn. It helps us to grow as humans when we can learn from the mistakes of our past generations, you know? So anyway, this book is available on my website. There's a link and I made it available so people can read a chapter for free. They can pre-order the book and, you know, we'll, I'll have a sense of, how you know when the book is available it'll i think it comes out october 25th and um i'll have a sense you know if i'm going to make it into a hard hard cover as well but right now it's paperback it's pre-order and if you want to read a chapter you can go to my website and read a chapter i think you'll be i know that we have over 20 uh testimonials and because I have some friends in the in the entertainment world, I sent it to some people that I really respect and I really respect. And the feedback was just like, wow, you know, like. So I got some really great feedback. You can read all the testimonials at my website and it's just been really cool. It really and the fun thing about it is. When it really started to become a book, you know, when I was like, oh, it's really happening. Then my mom got motivated and she wrote a book. Oh. Yeah. So that's kind of what happens. It becomes like this snowball effect, you know, when you see like, this is really important stuff, you know, to really write these, these things down. And it's, it's the reason why I journal, I journal almost every day, you know, it may not seem like anything at the time, but I promise you, when I go back and read journals from two years ago, I go, who's that person? <laughs> you know, I can, it's good to see our own growth. Yep. You know, not just, not just, you know, it's hard to see, you know, sometimes I think we can get really hard on ourselves because we can't see our growth. So it's nice to have a journal to go back and look at and go, wow, look what I was thinking two years ago. And I don't even think that way now. I think more like this, or we can see the the changes in ourselves, you know, when we keep track. And so it's a beautiful thing to keep track. And it's, it's what I love now. You know, I thought I was only going to do the blog for a year. I've ended up, I wrote another year of blogs just because it became such a habit and I love doing it. It doesn't, doesn't make any money. It doesn't do, it doesn't have any type of uh, satisfaction to me. What it does, it's like me being of service because when I get emails from people, when they read my blog and they go, oh my God, I'm going through this right now, or this happened to me, or then I go, oh my God, I have to write about, I have to write about that again, you know, or I have to write about it in deeper because it's really affecting people. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, both personally and professionally? It's a great question. 
It's a great question. And I think about that often. So where do I want to be in six months? Where do I want to be in a year? Where do I want to be in five years? Because I think when we really look at those chunks of time, they go so fast, you know, and I even ask my kids this all the time, you know, because they're young. I go, you know, always have in the back of the back of your mind, where do you want to be in six months? Where do you want to be in a year? And where do you want to be in five years? Really think about it and write it down. And then when you get to those marks, look back and see if you've even made any progress. It's so important. So for me, um, my goal right now is to really finish my book and feel confident enough to have it published. You know, that's, that's my six months goal. My year goal would be then to have it in the, in that process. And um, I think my five-year goal, there's a couple things. I think I really see myself working with people. And so I've been developing this 90 day program of healing um, for people who really want to heal from something that's hard to heal from, that you can't go to a raw, raw seminar to heal something that you want to do in private, that you don't really want to be in a big group of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm developing something right now with all the tools that I use really and how I really kind of got to where I got with my healing. So I'm developing that now I could see myself working with groups of people like this, just on zoom and, you know, with 20 to 25, maybe 30 people. So that's kind of in the back of my mind is developing a 90 day program. And I think the other thing is maybe at some point to do a podcast myself, like a healing podcast. I can definitely see the the program because just from the time we've shared, the the big thing is you like to help others. Yeah. And I think that's a characteristic that's so huge and it's valuable and inspiring the things that you talked about where the acts of service is such a big thing where People feel that ashamed that that's what they like to do. But to me, I love doing those kind of things. If I can go spend an hour at a community shelter or a food pantry and just help and give back to the community, to me, it makes my day because I get to meet amazing people. I get to enjoy the time. And it's not for me. It's for other people to benefit from. And I guarantee while you're doing those things. When you're there and you're working at the shelter and you're engaging with people that you know have something much harder they're going through, I guarantee you're not thinking about yourself. Nope. You're not thinking about some silly problem that you were probably thinking about before you got there. Like it it's there's something about getting out of ourself. (laughs) I know if I sit too long in my own thoughts, that's a problem. You know, but when I get on you know, a meeting with somebody else or, or somebody calls me that maybe needs help with something. I'm no longer thinking about my thoughts or something that's, it it becomes irrelevant. The other thing I find really fascinating is, is people ask me all the time, well, what do you do in those times of like real deep stress or real deep? And there's two things that come to my mind right off the bat. So moving my body I have to, if I sit in something that just makes it worse, Mm -hmm. you know, so if I'm really feeling something and I, you know, the thing that 
the, the obvious thing to do is to sit in it and try and fix it, right? Yeah. But really, you have to do the contrary. You have to put it down for 24 hours and go for a walk or do yoga or do something, ride the bike, you know, do something that you're not thinking about it. And then make three phone calls to people that you maybe haven't called in a while, not to help you with your problem, but just to get you away from your problem. Yes. And I have found by doing those contrary actions, those things that really don't make sense when you're in something and you really want to fix something or you're dwelling on something, those contrary actions to what I want to do. If I, if I do that and I take 24 hours to not think about it, I guarantee when I go back after those 24 hours, it doesn't look as, as harsh. Yep. It kind of, it toned down and it's more doable. Trying to fix anything in the first few moments of something, it just usually doesn't work out. It usually makes it worse. So I've written that there's, I, if you go to my website, I, I wrote a blog called the 24 hour rule. And it's really just about that. It's, it's taking 24 hours with anything, whether it's a relationship, you're having a hard time with your take, you know, just take 24 hours to come back to it with new, with a new uh, lens, you know, and Yeah, before making any major decisions now. It's a rule I have. It's written on my board. (laughs) No major decisions unless you sleep on it. You know, 24 hours. It's a 24-hour rule. I wrote a blog about it. Anything you're struggling with, if you're struggling with the end of a relationship, heartbreak. I, I have 52 blogs that literally I cover just about every... I mean, there's so much more I can write about, but I mean, I covered a lot of stuff that it's basically from my journal. It's stuff that when I start to write, I go, this should be a blog (laughs) because I'm dealing with it. And a lot of other people have similar experiences. I get that email. Oh my God, this is exactly what I'm dealing with right now. Then I, it just inspires me to just write another blog. Yep. Yeah. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Repeat that one more time. For someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Beautiful question. I had to hear it one more time. Thank you. Okay. So, so to overcome obstacles, obstacles just means that you're on the right path. If you have obstacles, if you have challenges, if you have problems, then you're doing something right. You're doing something right. And how to overcome all that, you know, for me, it was in my darkest, lowest mm-hmm. failures is where the growth began. So anytime now, when I feel like there is a failure, or there is a challenge, I go, wow, I'm on to something. So I'm going to learn something quick here, right? So problems, challenges, obstacles, these are all really good. Start looking at those as positives, because it means that you're on the right path. Keep going. Yep. Keep 
going. And my, my, my biggest tip is to write about those challenges, write about those obst- obstacles, write about those problems, write about it. Because usually what happens is once we get it down on paper, it lessens, it lessens the, the impact of it. So write it down so that you can always look back to see if you are progressing. Mm-hmm. When you write, when, you know, when you write your obstacles down, when you write those problems down or something that you're challenged with, you write it down, say, I'm being really challenged by this right now. And you write all about it. How beautiful is it that you could go back and look at that yep. months later and see if, if you're still challenged with it or if you progressed, if you grew. And then I would say if, if those obstacles are still appearing, then we've got to change and shift. We've got to shift course. We've got to try something new. If that fails, try something new. You know, there's, there's an abundance today of ways to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not just, you know, those days are over of, you know, it just being this or this, you know, we have so many tools available and, you know, find somebody that you can have as a mentor, whether you know them or not. You know, a lot of people that I look to for advice, I don't even know. Some I do know, but others I don't. You know, I, I have a lot of people that I follow, that I read their stuff. And it's always good to have, be in proximity of five people that are doing what you want to do. Yep. The other tip I will give is never take advice from somebody that is not living the life that you want to live. If they're not living the life, if they don't have the relationship that you want, if they're not making the money or working in the, in the environment that you want to work in, be very careful who you take advice from. I have had this experience over and over throughout my life, and I've made the mistake of kind of listening to people that have absolutely zero clue to what, to, to giving advice with something they know nothing about or they've never done. So for example, if I'm going to go to somebody on advice on how to write a bestseller, I'm going to go to somebody who's written a bestseller. Yep. It's amazing to me how many people go for advice to people who have never written a bestseller for advice on how to do that. And by the way, this is, you know, it can be used in any context. You know, I, I see people go for advice on relationships. Women do this especially, you know, you know, at lunches, you know, they'll all talk about their relationships with the husbands, with the boyfriends, with the partners, whatever. And sometimes I, I find it amazing that women kind of, they kind of get into this thing about their relationships. And I think to myself, why would you listen to anybody who's struggling in their relationship? Yeah. So for me, when I want to get, if I want to get relationship advice, I am going to look to somebody who's got the relationship thing down or read a book with somebody who struggled with a relationship and made it work where somebody has some really valid information. So Just, yeah, that's probably one of my biggest tips at my age, because I've made the mistake of like 
jumping on bandwagon, so to speak, or listening to people that didn't have a great relationship for relationship advice or business advice or money advice. Like, why would I listen to them? They're not living the life that I want. So that's, that's probably my number one tip. Well, Deborah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me this time. And if anybody wants to find me, they can go to my website. I'm sure you'll put that in the in the show notes. But yeah, my website is my name, DebraDriggs.com. All the links are there. And if you go and sign up for my newsletter, I have a free gift for everyone who signs up for my newsletter. It is, I can show you what it is. So on my phone, Oh, won't go away. Hold on. (laughs) Trying to get it so I can show you. I have these little, I don't know if you can see it, but I have these little screen where it says, you know, my den is a place, you know, they're little. Okay. I see it. Yeah. They're little screensavers. And I made a whole bunch of different ones and they're free. You can download them. And so there's that. And then if you sign up for my newsletter, You'll get it every week and, and it'll tell you about books, upcoming podcasts, upcoming live events, and all of that with all the books that I have coming up. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel for the full-length episode video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.